0: What's going on guys welcome to another episode of the modern day sniper podcast. Uh, I am Kalen Wojcik today and I'm gonna be flying without Phil and we have a super uh, interesting and very welcome guest here, uh, Mr. Cody Carroll and uh, I'm gonna get into that here in a second but for those of you guys who are joining us for the first time. Uh, The Modern Day Sniper podcast, what is it and what do we do? And we are dedicated to discussing the most up-to-date and relevant information that surrounds the lifestyle and the journey of the modern day rifleman. Whether you are a military or law enforcement professional, a long range shooting enthusiast or a hunter, precision rifle competitor, you're listening to this podcast because you're dedicated to the craft and like us, you are forever students on this endless journey of becoming the most well-rounded rifleman you can be. So without further ado, Mr. Cody, what's up, my friend? How are you? I'm doing good. How are you doing, Kaelin? I'm good, man. I'm I'm uh, I'm excited for this. This is something that we've been wanting to we've been wanting to have you on as a guest for a long time, and I'm glad it finally came to fruition. So, um, I guess we start this off by just kind of talk uh, talk a little bit about who you are, what your background is. I mean, you you literally have one of the most interesting career paths that I've ever heard of anybody having in the military. So, um, we've talked about you in reference in the podcast before. Um, you know, I highly respect you, man. Like you've always been. A mentor to me even though that we are peers in the in the grand scheme of time you have you know you've obviously had far more experience in the military than I have and so therefore I, I look up to you for that and you've given me a lot of mentorship over the years too so um, let's uh we're, what's what's all what's Cody Carroll all about?
1: <laughs> well, Libo? Thanks,
0: Libo? <laughs> <Yeah>. Libo, <laughs> Libo is definitely top of the priority
1: as you know yeah but uh, yeah, thanks for the kind words. I mean, you've obviously been a mentor to me as well, and um, I'm really stoked for uh, what you got going on now. This is awesome, and uh, thanks for having me on today.
0: Well, absolutely, man. I mean, it's one of these things where um, you know uh, we, we start, as we get a little bit older, the circle starts to get a lot smaller, but at the same time, it gets really, really strong. And you kind of identify the people that you want to associate yourself with. You identify the people that are going to help you grow the most. Right. And, and uh, you know, those relationships become, you know, mutually beneficial and just super strong, solid. I mean, we've done all kinds of crazy shit together. I mean, I mean, but jumping out of helicopters in Nepal and, you know, going all over the United States training people and having, having a lot of fun doing that stuff and just adventures along the way. It's, uh, it's, it's really cool because you bring a, you bring a really interesting um, kind of trade craft aspect to things. And, and that's really where uh, what I, whenever you speak about things like that, I always, I always stop and listen because you've got a lot to talk about with regard to field craft and, and like you, um, not the like we are like this is a modern day sniper podcast but at the same time like you're able to connect the old to the new right through those old tried and true techniques but at the same time uh progressing with technology progressing with time and stuff like that right
1: yeah i've always been big on kind of holding on to the basics uh basics and field craft and There's a lot of stuff that's overlooked. Uh, Mobility is a big part, whether it's by vehicles or by foot, ropes, whatever it is. Um, I think a lot of times we get too wrapped up in particular, like individual skill sets. Like, you know, we'll use shooting for an example, and you could spend way too much time on just focusing on shooting when, you know, if you can't get to the fight uh, through rugged terrain or arduous terrain, you know, what's the point?
0: Exactly um, that's the thing uh Phil actually shot me a message, and um, I said something to the effect of it was a quote you know at as snipers you know ten only ten percent of our job is shooting you know everything else is being able to get where you need to go um, and and get there alive so that you can actually do your job um, with all of the assets that you can that you can bring and then on the flip side of that though, when like shooting becomes your, becomes a necessity within that role that becomes a hundred percent of your efforts, right? That's exactly what you're focused on. So you, we have to be prepared for a lot of different things. Um, We have to have a lot of different skills that, that we're proficient on, which is very unique in in our line of work.
1: Absolutely. Yeah. You're, you hit the nail on the head with that one, man
0: when as you've gone through this you know you've been you started your career in the marine corps as uh as a helicopter crew chief correct yep sure and did. we came in the marine corps the same year and <laughs> and uh it's no it's interesting because well as, as i know a really really proficient force reconstance marine that came he was a motor t guy right and he took he mm-hmm. took the in-dock and and he was actually a member of MC SOCOM Det one when they started that up. And, and it just goes to show that it's like, not always about like, you're not always about where, you know, where your origins of infantry start because those skills can be taught, you know, those skills can be taught as long as you have, you know, as long as you have the heart to go along with it. Cause it's, it's not an easy path. Like we had, we talked on the podcast the last time, um, you know, I remember a conversation with you about, uh, infantry officer school. I remember I asked you, Hey, what, what's the most difficult arduous school you've been to? And I remember you said infantry officer school. And I was like, wow. Okay. So talk to me about that. What, what, what was so much more difficult and arduous about that over all the other schools that you've been to?
1: Yeah, definitely. Hands down. That was the hardest school that I've ever been to. It's, um, I guess they dig really deep into the warrior ethos and they do a really good job of weeding out the people that don't have it or that won't embrace it. And I mean, from, from day one, all the way to the last day, every minute of that course is spent with something that a warrior can embrace, whether it's, um, hand to hand, I mean, I I don't know how many times like instructors just grab two dudes and they're like fight. (laughs) And, um, I was a winter class too. So that, I mean, that just added a whole other dimension
0: to it. Winter time in Quantico is not fun.
1: No, it's not. And, um, I'm sure it's still just as hard, but you know, everybody says, Oh, it's so much harder What I went through, but I remember like having to, break they have like these big bomb craters all over the place out there and like literally like breaking the ice off the surface with an axe while some instructors spraying it with uh, or whatever you call it pepper spray <laughs> <laughs> and, then, and then two dudes get into it and grapple
0: <laughs> it's oh, horrible man. nice nice <laughs> that's savage well it's i think it's important because that's um you know, the, the Marine Corps as a whole and, and the Army, too, everything that is there to support the infantry. Everything yeah. other than the infantry is there to support your efforts. And as an infantry officer being responsible for leading those, uh, you know, off I mean, they can be really complex operations. They can be really simple operations. You know, you're expected to lead Marines. And so, therefore, I get it. It should be the hardest school out there. It's And that's good to know.
1: Yeah, without a doubt. And man, it was a, it was such a good experience. I mean, I would go to that school again, if they would, if they would let me, it was, um, you cover everything, you know, all the way from small arms up to, you know, artillery and airstrikes and how to coordinate all that. You, we traveled all over the place. We did, um, we did our, our Mount CQB package in an abandoned prison or throwing live grenades down hallways and doing real wall shots. We did um, a winter warfare package in Bridgeport uh, for about 10 days. And then we did a um, two-week uh, mini CACs
0: as well, hmm. out at 29 Palms, tying that's, it all together. Super comprehensive. I mean, it's, and that's uh, it's oh, important. Yeah. How long is that school? Um, I think it's 10 weeks. 10 weeks. And it's 10 weeks like full on. So what if it's anything you know then so you got out of that and then um, tell us about how you tell us about your your transition into the, the Army Special Forces right so yeah
1: <laughs> <laughs> so diverse career path like as we talked about more like career adD right so I guess I guess we can kind of start at the beginning so I, I did enlist uh, initially to be a, um, a crew chief um, It's not really what I wanted to do, but I think I fell victim of the, uh, you know, just like everybody else, like, Oh, that career recruiter really talked me into taking a, a job that fell in line with really behind the curtain was what he needed to fill. So, Mm -hmm. um, so I took that job and I honestly, like, I mean, I learned a lot, but I hated it. And I was only there for about maybe about a year and a half uh, that was a pretty tough pipeline as well. Uh, not physically, but mechanically. Mm-hmm. So you have to go through the mechanics course first. So I went through the air crew candidate school down in Florida. I went to Seer school. I went to, uh, the mechanics course out in, um, Pendleton. So I did Huey and Cobra mechanic. And then the at the time, they had just stood up the, um, this was late 90s, so they had just stood up the, um, an actual crew chief course. I think before that time period, you actually had to go to a squadron and they, you became what was called a homegrown crew chief. So as you progressed, you were allowed to start flying. So I was one of the, I don't know if it was like the initial, you know, class. I mean, I'm sure it'd been around for a couple of years, but at that point, I was one of the lucky guys that got to start flying right away. And um, I guess maybe the big thing that kind of attracted me to that is, you know, that scene from Full Metal Jacket. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Oh <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, the dude in the in the helicopter just getting some. Yeah. And uh, that's that's kind of what I pictured that job to be like, and uh, it wasn't at all. I mean, that was out of all of the jobs that I've had in the military, that was one of the the toughest jobs that I think I've ever had. We worked, um, and I'm not kidding on this. It was like 18 hours a day and probably six days a week. Um, it sucked, man. So I have a, I definitely have an appreciation for air
0: wingers because right. I started off as one. <laughs> <laughs> it takes a lot to fly those birds, man. It's a, it's, oh. is complex. Yeah. Cause like
1: you said, it's a, it's a support asset that's supporting the infantry. And uh, you know, trying to keep up with the uh, the infantry schedule when you're maintaining these machines that are you know ten years old, you're just swapping parts out. It's it was tough work. It just took a lot of time. Uh, But you know what I did is I I, I learned a lot from it. And um, attention to detail. I mean, because I was a I was a punk kid, you know. So I got into that. I didn't really appreciate it right off the bat, and I. I knew that the only way out of that was to to work hard. So I had been in uh, that squadron for maybe a month, and I found out about the force recon in the dock, which is w- really what I wanted to do from the beginning. And um, it used to be if you stood duty, you stood you know, 24 hour duty at the barracks, you got the next day off, which was kind of a big deal, even though you're awake for 24 hours. So. I um, made sure that I had duty on a Wednesday and First Force used to run an indoc uh, on a Thursday. I can't remember what, maybe it was the second Thursday of every yeah. month.
0: It was like second Thursday of every month and it was at Flores?
1: Yep. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So I was like, alright, I'm going to get duty on a Wednesday so I'll get off Thursday morning and I'll haul Astrid over there and take this indoc and I'll be done with this airwing bullshit forever. <laughs> <laughs> and uh so, as soon as I got off duty, I would already signed up for the end doc. I had gone over, and um it basically just went right into it and um I failed it, and that was the first thing in my life that I'd ever failed and it crushed me mm-hmm. and um it kind of like became this burning um, you know like one of those uh, it's like unfinished business mm-hmm. so and <laughs> I remember the gear list. Like I didn't have any of the stuff on the gear list. So I went to uh Dermo and stole an Alice pack. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. As per Cody up. SOP. Oh yeah. Acquired it. I liberated it.
0: Yeah.
1: <laughs> and, uh, yeah, that was good. And, uh, you know, it was um, it was one of those things where I was like, I was not expecting it to be that hard. I was pretty fit at the time, but I had really no idea what fitness really was. And, you had
0: to train for that in-doc. Like, that was – I've done a couple of those mock in and you really had to train for it because of the diversity in there. Oh, yeah. It was um, – I
1: mean, it's – you know, it's it's only one day, and I – you know, having been in force recon for a long time now, I can really appreciate that. You know, because every other special operations branch they get, you know, several weeks to months to assess the men that are trying out for that unit, and we get one day. Mm-hmm. And um, man, they you can really figure out what somebody's made out of in one day, mm-hmm. especially on the force recon and doc. But
0: yeah. We talk about that. We used to talk about it all the time with selections, like when, when you know, we were young and silly. We didn't know what the hell we were doing. We just wanted to try to make it hard. And through that, through that ego, and through that not misunderstanding what the what the real purpose was, I think you got to a point where it was like, you get older and you realize you're like, well, look, all I have to do is make this training realistic, and then it's going to be hard. Like it's not. Mm-hmm. It doesn't. We don't have to make it hard by doing stupid shit. We can do this by looking at the realistic aspect of what it is that you do and put and test people on that regard. And that's enough. That usually is enough as long as it's yeah. well thought out.
1: Yep. Absolutely. Hard. I mean, like I said in that video a couple of weeks ago, man, we've all done hard training. it was just dumb and mm-hmm. no point to it. <laughs> don't waste, don't waste people's time. Well, and it's just also, it's meaningful.
0: that's also a mental thing too. Like when you go into that, knowing that, that you're just literally doing this to suffer, there's nothing, there's no other value added to it other than the fact that we're just going to watch you suffer. That, that also makes it mentally more arduous. I think instead of like knowing I'm always being tested here and, and this evolution is for a purpose and this is what the purpose is. And it allows you, I think, to focus on it in a different way.
1: Right, yeah. So, um, yeah, and I'll get back to some training philosophy here in a minute, but to kind of make a, a long story short, so I uh, ended up getting accepted in the MSEP program. I commissioned, um, I went through TBS and IOC, became an infantry officer, and I did um, two deployments as a as an infantry officer.
0: So for those of you guys, I'm just going to interrupt you real quick. For those of you guys, the the acronym stuff, like we've been hit on this pretty hard because, you know, we talk in acronyms a lot and people are like, I don't know what you're talking about. So Cody said the TBS is is, uh, the basic school for officers and that's where. Uh, Marine Corps officers learn like basically it's their it's their boot camp outside of Officer Candidate School. It teaches them everything about what it means to be a, a, a United States Marine Corps officer, commissioned officer, and that school is a long school too, right? That's that's how how long is that? That one's six months. Yeah, it's six months because you're learning every aspect of of the Marine Corps in that. If I'm not if I'm not mistaken, correct? Right, it's infantry based,
1: um, so you learn all the other MOSs as well, except. You know, they're not going to put you in a jet right. <laughs> flight, that thing, but you do learn, uh, you know, you do learn quite a bit about the, the way that the Marine Corps works, um, but the focus is on infantry. So it's wow. a, it's an infantry based course for six months. And then if you're fortunate enough to select infantry, you go across the street to the infantry officers course
0: yeah that's something th- that's something that you guys as listeners um you know when when marine corps officer candidates come into the program there's no guarantee for anything like it's you it's purely based on performance where your placement is with your job is purely based on performance and i think that's really interesting because That takes, as far as my, as far as I'm concerned, that takes a lot of courage, you know, because you don't know where you're going to go and you don't know, you're you're essentially serving the Marine Corps, you know, like you're not going to say, I'm going to be a force reconnaissance officer or I'm going to go be an infantry officer. Like you're basically at the mercy of what the Marine Corps says it needs.
1: Yeah. And it's definitely a very competitive atmosphere, TBS, because you're, I mean, you're, You're with a group of 300 other lieutenants that are like the upper crust of, of the earth, man. They're collegiate athletes, you know, Harvard graduates, really smart dudes, uh, former enlisted guys with distinguished careers. Everybody's competing for the, you know, the MOS that they want. Mm -hmm. And so what did you get your degree in? So I got my degree in (laughs) fitness and nutrition. <laughs> well, it comes in handy right i mean you know that's yeah. good stuff to know i went uh i was at the uh, mesep prep course so um, and mesep is the uh, marine enlisted commissioning education program so that's that's also another competitive program that if you get into it they basically cut you loose for up to four years and you go to a college that has a Navy ROTC program and you knock out your degree. And as long as everything is on track at the end of it, you'll get commission. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I, I went to San Diego state because contrary to popular belief, the Marine Corps does not pay for your college, even if you get <laughs> accepted. <laughs> <laughs> so even if you do get accepted out of this program, you still have to go out of pocket for your college. So um at the time Cal State schools were only eight hundred bucks a semester. So that was within my budget. And um, I ended up going to San Diego State. I went to the MISA prep course and which was a pretty it was a pretty good it was a pretty good course. Like they they do like mock like math classes, science classes and all this stuff. And I remember one of the, one of the instructors was like, what do you want to do? And I was like, I want to be an infantry officer. And he's like, your degree is going to be in PE.
0: <laughs> and <I was>
1: like, <laughs> Perfect. Roger that, Roger that, sir. And, um, <clears throat> so I actually started um, and I was, I had a, um, this is good. I don't know if you know this about me, but I someday I do want to be a doctor.
0: <laughs> right on.
1: So I started with uh pre-med, and then I I realized like with hours and stuff that I had to put in with both uh you do have to do OCS um, on your summers. Uh, all of the other requirements I had to do with still being a Marine and going to school. It just didn't make sense to do pre-med because at the time there was no there was no path to even be a doctor for a marine officer. Oh. So I kind of pushed that to to the side and then I did, um, uh, ath- athletic training, which was like glorified water boy <laughs> for, for the, uh, for the sports team. So I got like these college punks, like, hey, bring me some water. And I'm like, yeah, bro, it's on the bench over there. I'm just, here if you... <laughs> I'm, just I'm just here if you get hurt. And, um, yeah, I, was, I just didn't end up liking that, so I, I switched uh, a couple of years into it. Just switched my major to fitness and nutrition because my goal was to get out of there. Uh, the war kicked off, and I wanted to get into it. So
0: mm-hmm. I, de- I definitely on. remember those days. It was um, very interesting times. Very, very interesting. Yeah, yeah, for <clears throat> sure. War changed. Yeah, for I mean, it literally changed everything. So, so yeah, so you went and you did, you did that, you did that aspect and then uh, you took a couple platoons to, to Iraq in the first mm-hmm. part of the first part of the war, correct? Yep. And where, where were you at?
1: So the first one I was in Baghdad and the second one I was in Diala. Okay. So up North mm-hmm. and it was, it was a good experience. I mean, I had um, at that point, limited exposure to um, some special forces guys, which kind of piqued my interest And Hey, what are these guys doing? Mm -hmm. I remember reading a, um, so while I was going to school at San Diego state to pay my tuition, I also worked at REI in the bike shop. (laughs) Right. (laughs) And uh, there was this magazine that was called uh, national geographic adventure. And they had done an article on the first green berets that were that had gone into
0: Afghanistan. Yeah, and, uh, is that the that the one on the horse soldiers?
1: Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yep. And I remember looking at those pictures and seeing like these bearded, barrel-chested <laughs> freedom fighters like out doing guerrilla warfare stuff, and I was like, "That, that's what I want to do. That's the that's ticket. That's awesome. That's it. That's the one right there." <laughs> and um, so, I, you know. And in my mind, I thought that there was a way to do that in the Marine Corps. And I had, uh, towards the end of my time as an officer in the Marine Corps, on the first go, I had screened and selected for what uh, time was called uh, FMTU, which was the Foreign Military Training Unit, which became part of the initial uh, MARSOC stand-up. So there was first MSAB, second MSAB, and there was FMTU. Then they changed the name to... um, Special operations training or foreign militaries, but I can't even remember. MSOAG is what what the acronym was. And um, I was still in my infantry battalion at the time. I was the, I had been everything that you could be in an infantry battalion as an officer. I'd been a platoon commander on two deployments. I'd been a company XO. I had been, uh, I was a sniper platoon commander. And then I was working as the S3 Alpha. I had gone through three COs. I'd been at this this battalion forever. And my goal was just to get to MARSOC. Mm-hmm. And um, we had a new operations officer come, came in and got into an argument with this dude because he was like infantry to the bone. Like, dude did not believe in anything, special operations, reconnaissance, none of that stuff. Uh, you know you know the type of dude. Oh, sure do. And, um, basically we'd gotten into an argument and I called the monitor that day and I had to wait. So I was in a, in a holding pattern, even though I'd started doing some of the initial training with, uh, FMTU, I'd done their seer course, I'd done their, uh, counter surveillance package. It was the early days of MARSOC. So it was, it was pretty loose on the way that things were run. Uh, they were still getting stood up. First and second were pretty solid because you know they basically took first and second force recon companies, ran the new flag up, and then they're off and running. Yeah, um, but FMTU, which was concept loosely modeled after what SF was doing for foreign internal defense, was uh, flying by the seat of their pants. So with resources available, and that's always tough. So I called the monitor and I said, hey, where can you send me today? I got to get out of here today. And I was like, but before you answer, you can send me to First Force, <coughs> First SOTG, <laughs> and that's it. It was like, man, I can't, it's like I can't send you to any of those things. He's like, I could send you to like base safety officer Barstow or- <laughs> Oh God. <laughs>
0: Uh, so for you guys um so cody's talking about this dude called the monitor um and it's not some big giant lizard running around someplace um in the marine corps we have um every military occupational specialty has one dude that's in charge of managing the needs of the marine corps based upon that military occupational specialty so it's like you know you have um as an example an 0369 uh, infantry unit leader, so like that monitor will look at the needs of the Marine Corps and rotate dudes that are getting ready to rotate, and they're basically playing chess with personnel. And so it always behooves you to get in good graces with your monitor as you grow in your career, and you and you have a direction that you want to take. It's always a good idea to 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 really start to lean on your monitor and and make sure that you guys are jiving on your goals and your career path. Yeah.
1: And be, be nice to all the people that you know, because you never know who <laughs> yes. may end up in that position.
0: You never know.
1: <laughs> <laughs> Find yourself as Barstow as the base safety Indeed. officer. Indeed. <laughs> so uh, um, I end up dropping papers that day to get out uh, just because I, I mean, my, my whole kind of perspective on my life is like, there's things that I want to do. Uh, nobody's going to stand in the way of that. And Mm -hmm. at that point I had, uh, my direct supervisor stand in the way of what I could and couldn't do for my own career path. And uh, I just wasn't going to put up with it. Mm -hmm. So I, uh, I got out, I moved to Colorado. Uh, I started, I started, you know, doing the standard contract work that every guy does when they get out. Mm -hmm. And uh, I was working at the tactical tracking operation school down in Arizona when um, a couple of um, SF teams came through and um, ended up, you know, becoming good friends with these dudes. They sent out a couple more uh, guys to do some sniper training with me. And then a few weeks after that, I got a call from their CO, and he was like, hey, do you want to go to Afghanistan with us? And I was like, absolutely. And I am a civilian at this time.
0: right? And
1: uh, he's like, yeah, we're, we're going to try to figure out how to get you to Afghanistan as a, a tracking subject matter expert because he had plans of like uh, basically running rat lines um, from Afghanistan into Pakistan and doing some other things out there. And I was like, yeah, no problem. My security clearance was still good. And uh, as time went on, we couldn't figure out how to bring a, a contractor and basically a combatant role to Afghanistan. Uh, so, so he was like, Hey, uh, do you want to join the army? <laughs> <laughs> so uh, I was like, yeah, I'll join the army. And he's like, all right, so we'll get you a commission. I was like, no, man, I don't want, I don't want that. <laughs> I want to be a Sarge. <laughs> yeah. I want to be a Sarge. So I enlisted in the army over the phone. (laughs) It's awesome. And they made me a a staff sergeant. And um, I um, I ended up going to selection. And that's also when I went to the uh, the MARSOC sniper course. Mm -hmm. Um, And I did one deployment with um, them to Afghanistan. And when I got back, I, I still had full intentions of of going to the Q course, but as time went on, so as you can imagine at this point, my paperwork is
0: really fucked up. You can't even imagine, <laughs> like, what is going on with this guy?
1: Yeah, so, I mean, when I enlisted in the Army, they gave me an MOS of what was called 09 Bravo, which means basic training. Oh, man. <laughs> So, on all these con ops that were going up to the SODIF, they had me listed, you know, it'll say your name, um, social security number, and then your MOS. And so they have all these 18 series dudes, and there's me as 09 Bravo. And right? everybody's like, what the hell <laughs> what is an 09 Bravo
0: doing? The guy must be, doing. An
1: eight, must be an 18 Bravo. <laughs> like, no, no, oh, 09 Bravo, basic trainee. <laughs> With an M110. <laughs> yeah, getting some. So that that deployment was great for me Um, because I had gone from like a billets that had like, you know, just high stress billets, you know, platoon commander, S3 Alpha, you know, standing up units. And it was, I just literally got back to the basics where I was wearing like blue jeans, you know, like whatever shirt I wanted to, Alice pack, sniper rifle, beard, and I supported every team. Um, (laughs) that would have me out there um doing whatever whatever they need to be done I there's to something do,
0: to, there's something to be said about that too like just wanting to go be a dude you know and, oh, and yeah. say <clears throat> like this is and I, I was at that same point like before before i got wounded and that ended my career like my whole purpose was like look man i just want to go to a unit where i can focus on developing myself and my skills where I don't have to worry about other aspects of things like, you know, I don't want to say I don't want to be a leader, but, but I do want to just be able to say, all right, I'm not worried about any of this bullshit. I'm worried about becoming the best reconnaissance man that I can possibly be.
1: Yeah. And you could do it at your own pace too. Mm-hmm. That's, um, and that, that was, that's one of the things I don't agree with the way the Marine Corps does things. They have an up or out philosophy. And you're either moving up or they're kicking you out. And sure. all, I mean, I'm a slow learner. I mean, dude, I, I've spent over 10 years as a platoon commander. And I felt like, I'm, you know, the last platoon that I, that I took over to PACOM was the first one that I actually got right. It just takes time to learn those things. Mm-hmm. So if, the British have a concept called the professional corporal. And they keep people in a role really as long as they want to keep them there. Right. And there's no pressure to move up.
0: Uh, Developing. Yeah, it's like the ultimate, that's like the ultimate way to develop your subordinates is to just, if they're like, hey, if you're good at this, stick around. Like, let's cultivate, let's cultivate you so that you can, you know, build a, a more strong legacy to pass on to the people that are, that are coming up. And I, mm-hmm. I, I 100% agree with you on that. I think the Marine Corps gets it wrong on a lot of ways when it comes to personnel retention because of that fact.
1: Yeah. You're you you're right, man. We lose a lot of good dudes because they get moved up into a position that they're not uh, mentally ready for. I would say it's probably not that they don't want to do it, but they don't want to do it right now. Mm-hmm. They still got a lot of you know, some bullets left in the gun or whatever. Sure. They need to get out there and, and do this job. Now I'll accept doing that job later. Like I'm perfectly fine with doing, you know, jobs that are less intensive now cause I'm 41. I just can't keep up with the young dudes anymore. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, that, so going back to that deployment, it was really good for me. Uh, you know, being a guy that came from, you know, uh, having that full spectrum infantry background, a little bit of aviation like 10 years prior, I think really kind of set me up for success on it. I mean, it, it, whatever it was, you know, if they're like, Hey, we need a dude who knows how to shoot mortars. Like Cody knows how to shoot mortars, run machine guns, drive trucks, yep. uh, name it. Um, the infantry, you know, I was a legit student in the art of war at that time. That's all. I, I mean, I hadn't read a book for 10 years for fun. It was all about different conflict strategy. Uh, I was really into it, man. <laughs> So having that opportunity to go over over there with those dudes, you met them. They're like, these guys are crazy. <laughs> these guys are crazy, they're crazy. <laughs> 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 they are all about getting it done, and yeah. um, so I got back from that. I um, had some paperwork issues where um, basically my my selection was going to expire because the Q course was going through some training at the time. And you had to have gone back within a year, but my paperwork still wasn't set up. So I, I still felt like I had unfinished business in the Marine Corps because I'd failed that in dock back in 98. Um, so I started looking at getting back into the Marine Corps. And uh, a good friend of mine there, Greg Kelly, and um, some of the other dudes were friends uh, with General General Kelly and General Dumford, who later became the Commandant. Mm-hmm. Um, so we talked to those guys, and they're like, Hey, we we got this dude, we think he's retarded, but he wants to go in the Marines <laughs> again. So, uh, General, do it again. <laughs> so, uh, General Thumford and General Kelly, um, I had to get like tattoo waivers and age waivers and all this. I mean, it. It took 18 months to get back in the Marine Corps, but they did it for me. They made me a day one lieutenant again, and um, I was at uh, Third Force Reconnaissance Company ever since. Mm-hmm. And it was a, it was, it was awesome. Um, I stayed a platoon commander that entire time, so from 2011 all the way up until right now. I'm just waiting on my retirement date to come through.
0: Yeah, I think that's actually when I met you was 2011. <clears throat> and you were just getting into um, into that role. And then, you know, we worked, we worked together at Magpul for for quite a few years. And um, yeah, man. that was that was enjoyable, because I, I learned a tremendous amount from you, because you you have just a different way of thinking that I hadn't been exposed to yet. And, um, you know, when you have that kind of when you when you are able to amass that kind of experience, and and just see such diversity, there's something to be said for that because you know going back to, you know that the trip that you went to Afghanistan on with with an ODA or an Operational Detachment Alpha, like that is the the ability to have that um, the thirty thousand foot view of what's what's happening and how you are included in that and how you can insert yourself into that big picture and have the diverse background. And knowledge to to say okay well i understand all of these moving pieces i understand all these moving pieces i understand what it takes to get these pieces to do what they need to do and that that is a tremendous asset to somebody in that role because you know for those of you guys who don't understand like a you know, a special forces operational detachment alpha is a very small organization that's responsible for a tremendous amount of not only equipment, but strategic level execution of missions. And that's a big deal. And those, and those, that small, am I correct? It's 13, correct? Uh, 12. 12. So you have a 12, you got 12 guys that, that are, you know, alone and unafraid along with and if you're conducting the the traditional uh, unconventional warfare role of special forces you're training indigenous personnel to 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 fight against the enemy and that's a that's a huge deal like people i don't think people truly grasp what what a green beret does in the traditional sense of of the mission of unconventional warfare
1: right or i mean not necessarily even just unconventional warfare but um you know, foreign internal defense or direct action. They're they're really working as advisors. It's a force multiplier, basically what it is, you know? So if you think on the terms of maybe a five-year plan, an ODA can go somewhere. um, They can raise an army. You know, every ODA is set up to to run a a battalion or advise a battalion, maybe even more, maybe even up to a regiment, Uh, but they can really... You take 12 Americans, you can put them into a spot and they can lead and advise, um, you know, a battalion worth of men mm-hmm. fighting in their own country. So it's a, yeah, it's, it's a really cool job. Uh, they do some great things. Um, they definitely work with less. You, a lot of people think special forces is, you know, you, they imagine like the big money faucet turned on where it's like all the gear you could ever want. And it's not like that at all. Um, they're just good soldiers, right? Professional, professional soldiers. You know, you have guys that can think outside the box a lot. And at the time I didn't really appreciate some of the, you know, some of the mentality from the older guys. Um, we had a a guy that had gone to the Q course in 1978. That was the year I was (laughs) born. That's the year I was born in. And, um, I remember his pace or his tempo that he moved at for urgency just was just annoyed me because at the time I'm like, Hey, we've got six months, boys. It's time to get out there and get it on. And they're like, yeah, I think I'm gonna order some equipment for the gym and, and maybe make sure that the, uh, you know, like maybe make sure that the, uh, you know, the the chow that we get in the chow hall is good. And at the time I was like, I don't care. But when you're, you know 50 years old and you plan on doing this until you're like 72 right. and I remember I remember talking to him I was like I was like how come you're not just like ready to run out the wire and go get it on And he's like this war is not going to be over in my lifetime man And I, <laughs> I was like oh, that's a good
0: point we got plenty of time well, yeah. I I was fortunate enough to be assigned to an ODA on my trip to Iraq in 2004 and I worked with those guys for 2 weeks um as augmenting them as a as a sniper. And watching those guys work, I was astounded. When I first showed up at their at their compound and and got integrated into their team and um I was exposed to their planning process and here I am, you know, I'm coming from the Marine Corps where it's like everything is done in a, in a very regimented way. And these guys were like, it was like, Hey, so I was talking to the team sergeant. He was also a very, a a much older gentleman. Maybe it was because he had a beard. He just looked older. And I bet you at that point in time, he was in his mid forties. He was a master sergeant. He was the team chief and he was just like, yeah, so uh, we're just, we're going to go over here and we know that these guys are coming out of the city and they're going to be here and and we're just going to get them before they get here and I was like (laughs) okay he's like yeah just when everybody when you'll know when it's time just just shoot when 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 you know it's time and I was like that's it (laughs) I was like okay and that's just the way that it ran and that's the way I mean obviously there was much more high level stuff but as far as like that level it was it was very um I don't want to say cavalier but it was everybody was a professional all these guys were Um, the utmost level of they exuded the utmost level of professionalism and I was like I was blown away I was I was a a real I was a senior sergeant about ready to pick up staff sergeant and and I was like man this is these guys are true professionals and it was uh, it was interesting to be around that different dynamic because of um, it wasn't that everybody was on their own program it was just the way that they there was this implied responsibility, which is like the epitome of what we would call the big boy rules, right? It's just mm-hmm. like, it's like this implied level of responsibility, you know, I'm, you're responsible for everything and, and nobody's going to micromanage you to get it done.
1: Yeah. I mean, and I think a lot of that mentality comes from, in my perspective, what a, a special operations unit does is, they go somewhere and f- figure out what the problem is. Whereas a conventional unit will plan for, you know, all these contingencies and go in and try to execute that plan. A lot of times it takes getting a guy in there on the ground to, to really make an assessment of the situation and figure out what needs to
0: happen. That's, a,
1: so, that's
0: awesome. That's a great way of putting that.
1: Yeah. And I think in, on the conventional side, we just spend, you would get force fed these plans that have, you know, I mean, look at our comp plans here, the, the, you know, you have four different.
0: It's insane.
1: Yeah. It's just, let's just figure it out when we get Mm -hmm. there. Let's not stress about it. You know, everybody has, is trained to a certain level and that's usually a a, a pretty high standard and you can trust the men to the left and the right of you
0: Mm
1: -hmm. let's just go figure it out.
0: Yep. Yeah. That's, that's, that's the pinnacle it it really is one of the one of the pinnacles anyways that that you can achieve in our in our world of of military operations in the united states so what where are you at now and what's where you've done you've done some you've done some sniper work you 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 carried a rifle on that deployment to afghanistan um Mm -hmm. and i remember you know i'm I'm have many conversations with you talking about like what you learned as a sniper in that role. And um, it's definitely different than anything that I've done on the conventional side of the house, because basically from what I understood, you're pretty much just doing your thing and, and inserting yourself where you needed to be. And, and, um, you know, basically participating on a six month long hunting trip. And, as a, as a sniper, well, I mean, that's, and I tell people the same thing, like on on my trip, it was like, well, what was it? It wasn't a six month long hunting trip. You're trying to, you're trying to analyze the space, figure out what's happening and then move to support and adjust based upon what's happening with the enemy. Um, because once they figure out, once you figure out their TTPs and you start giving them the business, then they very, very quickly figure out how to counter your counter. And so then it just becomes this giant game of cat and mouse until you figure it out. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So
1: that's, that's pretty much what I did on that deployment was, you know what, since I was assigned to the ODB, um, I kind of had free reign to stay in that green cycle and by green cycle, I mean like an operational cycle the, the entire time uh, based on whatever, whatever team needed support. So uh, whatever the a team was doing, I would ask the team sergeant, I was like, hey, do you want some sniper support on this operation? And uh, nine times out of ten, they would say yes. Or, you know, like sometimes they, they might say, no, but we need a guy to run mortars. Or, no, we need a guy to run machine guns or, you know, basically set, use the, set the commandos up in an outer cordon on this raid. And uh, I was always down to do whatever. Uh, but the majority of the time, I just did sniper support for them. And I really enjoyed it. Uh, it was, it was a good job and uh, we had a quite a bit of fun over there with it.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: So, so I guess where I'm at now, going back to that question. Yeah. So, so I guess, you know, in the last 10 years, me and you've taught a lot of, we've done a lot of sniper courses together. Mm-hmm. Um, so I left Magpul. I started working for Surefire uh, in a product management role for suppressors and weapons. And then last December, I left that job, stepped down to a um, a role in just precision weapons and suppressors. So I worked directly for Barry in the suppressors and weapons department as a precision weapons guy. Mm -hmm. Um, And that's... Just a small-time job there, um, and I still work as a, a contractor for MARSOC, teaching the uh, the MARSOC Advanced Sniper Course, mm-hmm. which is a, a great program. And then, oh yeah, and I'm also about two weeks away from graduating the Firefighter Academy.
0: <laughs> Just add <laughs> another one to the list. <laughs> I was like, yeah, that looks cool, let me try out for that. So, out of all the things that you've learned, there's so many there's so many different ways that we can apply the things that, that we've learned over the years. And if you could kind of give give folks like a high level, hey, these are what th- these are the things that are really important to you to to Cody. Like what what is really important to you with regard to like sustainability or sustainment training or you know, cause a lot of people ask us that question and, and more now we're starting to get more questions from people and, you know, specifically military and law enforcement units that are saying, Hey, you know, we really appreciate your philosophy, the way that you're approaching this. How can we like, how, how can you help us implement that into our program? And, you know, there, I think there's, it, it ebbs and flows, you know, it ebbs and flows with time. And, and as we see a lot of times with, with anything specialized, well, like the sniper community anyways, it's like you see the rise, you see the ramp up during the time of war um, where, you know, a commanding officer will identify the benefit of that asset through experience mm-hmm. um, because until they see it happen, until they see it work and see the effectiveness and 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 how well, of a force multiplier how effective of a force multiplier a sniper can be then they're like oh i want like a hundred of you guys everywhere and right so then the focus on training becomes really really scrutinized because they see that the benefit of that asset and then they want more of it and then as things ramp down it doesn't become that much of a you know it's almost like there's a loss of interest and so how can you apply like the things that you've taught or the things that you've learned to to people that are trying to maintain the the tip of the spear so to speak of of their training program and and what are the things that you implement what would you implement so that's a pretty deep question sure but i
1: i would say i would always fall back onto baseline infantry skills um you if you're a sniper supporting an infantry unit, you really need to know what those dudes are doing. Uh, so it all goes back to the whole combined arms, fire team, platoon, company level infantry infantry units. So when it comes to like, hey, getting good at skills or like what needs to be trained on, um, you know, there's a lot. Uh, it's, it's pretty much endless. So if you think about hey, what does an infantryman need to know? Uh, If you have an opportunity to send guys to infantry schools, whether it's ranger school, uh, the squad leader school, infantry unit leader course, uh, infantry officer course, so they can understand the big picture and how they would fit into that big picture with Mm -hmm. their small role as a sniper, that's going to be super valuable. And kind of dovetailing off that a little bit, so you can't spend... All of your time <clears throat> learning learning what somebody else does, you have to focus on your skills. Mm-hmm. So individual technical skills, like uh, you know running a precision weapon and all the technology that comes with that, that's stuff that needs to be trained to, um, mobility, field craft, all that stuff just takes time. and I think one of the things that we do. That is of detriment to our men in the field this we we don't do long enough field operations, right. Uh, we take We take guys out of the field almost um, on the daily. It seems like we'll go out there, we'll train, we'll set them up some bullshit bivouac site that doesn't support any other training other than just, hey, this is a place where I'm gonna hand out Chow and you're gonna sleep at right. So I've gone out of the way to, you know, when we put guys, when we do our jungle training, we put them out there and we just keep them out there and they learn how to get comfortable. Uh, The security posture isn't typical Marine Corps. Marine Corps used to go into the, when I say the Marine Corps, the units that I've been in the Marine Corps and went to the field, it's like you have like you have all these tents set up and you have dudes walking around all night with unloaded guns like somebody's going <laughs> to attack you. Right? So s-
0: stupid. Like, just go to sleep, man. Nobody's coming out here. <laughs> uh, Some sergeant major's head's going to explode right now. Oh, yeah. It's going <laughs> to
1: melt. My, 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 my bag of chow, even though I have cooks that work at the battalion that don't do shit. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. So... Yeah, you know, it's like, hey, just picture you're going to have to live here and you need to be comfortable just like anywhere else. you got to go to work tomorrow. You know, what do you need to do to eat right and rest well to be ready for the next evolution? Sure. And it takes takes some getting used to, you know, you're, sleeping in a, you're going to sleep in a hammock. You're going to, you know, use some field craft to make some things. Maybe have a campfire to cook some fish over or whatever it is procure your own water. I mean, this is, this is your life now.
0: Yep, exactly. And that's, and, and something even from, you know, back country stuff um, you know, on the, on the hunting side, there's something to be said about living in the mountains by yourself for, you know, a self-sustaining anyways, for, you know, plus five days. Like mm-hmm. there's a tremendous amount of consideration that needs to be taken to, okay, so what is my mobility going to look like? Where am I going to sleep? Cause now we have to find water. Um, there's, there's just so many different aspects of it, which again, that's why I like, that's why I like backcountry hunting so much because it really is just, it's, it's kind of like planning a military operation or a patrol for 10 days. You know, you have to, yeah. there's a lot of considerations that need to be, uh, checked off the list and, and addressed or else you're going to get yourself into a situation that is, it's unplanned and then potentially really dangerous depending on the conditions.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Um, I don't know anything to, add to
0: that. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, you, you come, you come at things like you've been putting out some videos lately talking about, um, you know, really practical, practical level rifle skills. And I think we kind of echo the same thing, um, along the lines of what it means to be a, like a well-rounded rifleman. And based upon your experience, like you're out there shooting, you know, just a standard bolt action 30 odd six, like a sporting rifle. Um, and we're seeing this just massive progression with gear and people thinking that they have to have all of this stuff to accomplish that goal. And, you know, you come out with the traditionalist aspect of things and the more field craft aspects of things, you just kind of blow that out of the water. And I remember um, the first time I shot the Steel Safari was with you. And the, I asked you, I remember like, how do you prepare for this? And you said, equipment management. If you can manage your equipment and you can shoot, you will do well at this event. And dude, that was that was exactly what it was. And it was the more I what I realized is the more simple it was, the better. Uh mm-hmm. the better it was. Like I literally shot that whole match with nothing but a set of trekking poles for, for a support, a tw- a 10-pound rifle and that shot six five creed and um a backpack like that's it and i shot really well at those events not lugging all this bullshit. not you know i i relied on a hard data card a range find a set of range finding binoculars and my rifle that was it mm-hmm. and you're prosecuting targets for out you know out to 800 yards in unknown true unknown distance con- conditions and it's really a field event and you know, you excel at that at that aspect of it because you you bring it back to its simplest form. What can I do with this rifle with the equipment that I have?
1: Yep. Yeah, I owe, so I owe a lot of um, my experience in precision rifle, or just as a sniper, to really the guys from Thunder Beast, uh, Shane Smith, Ray Sanchez, and Shane uh, Coppinger. Those dudes, so when I first moved to Colorado, um, I had contacted them because they were doing, they were setting up a lot of matches like the Steel Safari, mm-hmm. and I remember contacting Zach, and if you don't know Zach, he's kind of a weirdo. <laughs> <laughs> Love you, Zach, but you're, you're a fucking weirdo. <laughs> and, uh, you know, just like, man, I don't really know how to read this guy, you know, like. You know, I'm just looking for some people to go shoot with maybe learn some things from mm-hmm. and I'd linked up with um, Ray also and Ray's like, oh you want to go shoot? We'll go shoot. And um, I had a 308 uh, LTR that I that was the only bolt-action rifle I had at the time and we had gone out to the grasslands with some steel targets and set them up and I remember thinking Yeah, we're going to have these big E-types. Ray brings out like these like 10-inch plates. And we're walking out to like 1,100 yards set these things up. And I'm like, dude, are you going to be able to hit this out here? I'm used to shooting like big E-types, you know. And he's like, weren't you in a sniper platoon? I was like, yeah, we (laughs) shoot big-ass man's minute of man targets, dude. And he's like, that's dumb. (laughs) So... We walk back. We set up on the firing line, and um, I think I was shooting like 168s at the time, which were garbage. And so Ray lays down, and he stacks five rounds in his 308 and drills the 1100 yard target five times in a row. And dude, I have no—I might have been, may as well have been shooting up a bull's ass. You know, I have no no impact, no idea on my go, and. I remember being like ah, teach me yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, steel safari was a few weeks later they got me into that and uh, got my ass handed to me and um, really just took what those guys had to say about um, practical rifle was what they used to call it before it was precision rifle yep and yeah I, I just really embraced that I did that deployment to afghanistan after that and really cleaned up using a lot of the stuff that those guys um not really taught me but more of like just their way of shooting like if you watch ray's body mechanics when that dude shoots you you especially you caleb are gonna have a an aneurysm yeah. you know, he's, <laughs> he's not like in line with his rifle Right, but uh, you ask him how he does it. He's like, you just get a good sight picture and jerk the trigger.
0: <laughs> well, there's that. I mean, <laughs> so it's funny because um, when you, when you say that, it's I've I've kind of I'm fundamentally based, but because I want you to have a good solid baseline, because once you have that good solid baseline, you learn what you can and can't get away with. Um, You know, a lot of the times too, like you guys, like we're talking about the steel safari and we're going, well, you're going to be shooting out of some really crazy positions and like they make you work for it there. And I've told everybody since, since I, since Cody started to introduce me to that type of shooting, I tell everybody, man, if you really, truly want to test your skills with a practical application of a rifle, that's where you need to go. Like that's where you need to spend your time. Um, you know, cause you go to a PRS match or even an NRL match or whatever, it's all the same stuff, right? It's all the same stuff. Whereas you go out to the blue steel ranch out there in New Mexico, where you can see the gyrocopter pilot from Mad Max beyond the Thunderdome <laughs> walking around.
1: <laughs> we saw that guy at Kmart. We
0: saw that guy at Kmart. Don't go to the Kmart and in car, guys. It's, well, you can go there if you want to see some really weird Mad Max shit. <laughs> um, they don't observe child labor laws there either. Um, but you look at that stuff and you go, man, like my eyes are really open to a different way of doing this. And, um, it's, uh, it's interesting because you don't see a lot of the PRS crowd there. You don't see a lot of those guys because it's just a different form of shooting and the the rifles that you think that are going to work over here on the PRS crowd, You take them out there to the to to the steel safari, you're going to get your ass handed to you. You you know, it's it's just a different game altogether. And um, and the other thing that I think is really interesting too, you you said you voluntarily said I got my ass handed to me. I think that there's a big um, we've gotten to a point in in the in the shooting world where nobody wants to have their ass handed to them, right? They're nervous, they're afraid to put themselves out there. And, and that's truly, though, that's where the growth happens. You have to be able to step outside mm-hmm. that, man. And you, gotta, and you have to be willing to put yourself out there and say, oh, whoa, okay, I don't know what I don't know. Um, and these are the points to work on. I remember that first, the first time we went there, the very first day, after the first three stages, I was like, dude, you got to have your shit nailed and dialed for this or else you're going to miss everything and it's uh it's it's an eye-opening experience.
1: Yeah, or just finding the targets. Yeah. Know, a lot of people struggle finding the targets because you walk up for those of you guys out there that haven't shot steel safari, you walk up to a position and there's two pieces that you're standing on a spot and there's two pieces of engineer tape that represent the short end of the range fan and you have five targets out there and you have five and a half minutes to locate range and engage all five of them. Mm -hmm. Uh, So it's a lot of people struggle with that they're not painted. They're just, you know, steel plates hanging on a conveyor belt strap out there somewhere. Yeah. There there used to be a guy. So the first time I shot that match, um, one of the dudes that I shot with a lot was a guy that shot a woodstock seven mag with a duplex reticle. (laughs) <laughs> just doing holdovers and hold off for wind. He had a, remember those little things you could put on top of your scope and you pull it yeah. out and it's got like yeah. dope written on it. He had one of those on it and he would, he had a laser rangefinder but he'd pull it out and he'd be like, all right, 18 inch holdover. <laughs> like, and he was <laughs> drilling them, man. And yeah. I was like, that, that dude is dangerous. He was like 60 years old. Yeah, that's, that's cool but, stuff. Uh,
0: Michael, uh, Buck, Michael Bachelieri, uh, he yeah. was teaching a course up in, um, in Canada with Rob Furlong and he told me about a, um, a Canadian rancher that showed up to the course and he was, he had like this super old school, uh, I want to say it was a Ruger, like a model of an M77 or something in, in, in two, two, three. And this guy had, just like you're talking about, he just had a scope on it, a duplex scope. And and Buck was telling me this dude literally hit everything he aimed at because he was he was a cattle rancher and he was using this rifle to kill coyotes uh, to protect his to protect his cattle ranch and the guy just got to the point where he was so good with that rifle that he literally could hit anything he aimed at with it and he knew that he knew exactly what it did and it's one of those kind of like. Beware the man with with only one rifle type situation probably knows how to use it really well. Mm-hmm.
1: well yeah, and you, you probably remember this from shooting a ton of 308, is you just kind of get a feel what the trajectory looks like. Yeah. How far are the wind's gonna push it. Like, you know, somebody may ask you, like, hey, how hard is the wind blowing? And you're like, I don't know, about two mils left. Yep. And <laughs> you're like, I don't know how fast in miles per hour, but I, I know do. what it'll do to my bullet.
0: I know exactly where I need to hold to get it to hit the target. Yeah.
1: And there's yeah, something and to I be think, said
0: for that, man. There's, there's something to be said for that.
1: I think that's the point, like when it comes to being a rifleman, that's the point that you want to get to is whether you can understand what, you know, ballistically, like what your bullets doing at certain ranges without the use of, you know, PDAs or commute computers or, uh, you know kestrels and all these other cool gadgets that we have i mean you can use those as a tool maybe exer- ex- accelerate your learning curve but don't not pay attention to what's going on out there
0: yeah we uh i remember we went out to um uh sniper country out in utah we, we taught mm-hmm. that class out there and and it, i remember that it was a couple of days before the course and it was me you me and, Aaron and um, we we went up that ridge, we went up that ridge and we, we kind of had a bet. It was like no range finders, no mill reticles, no nothing. You shoot, you got three rounds per target. And that is badass. Like that was awesome because that really truly shows you what, where you're at as a rifleman. Like where are you at with your skill set? And you'd be surprised, man. A lot of you guys that are listening you are like, ah, you probably don't hit shit. Well, that's because... You're you're so focused on the reliance of that technology that you have to be willing to put yourself out there with literally nothing and see what you can do with your rifle. And it's Mm -hmm. pretty impressive, like within the first three or four targets, you get the feel for it really fast and you start hitting stuff on first and, and always almost always a second round impact, as long as you're not super far off from your initial uh, you know, initial range estimate. Right.
1: Yeah, that was fun. Yeah, busting rocks too. Like a a lot of guys, um, like, hey, what can I do to train for this? Just go out and you know, it's if you can find a place where you can safely shoot and it's legal, you know, and you're shooting across canyons, just bust rocks. Uh,
0: that's, that's good. That's that's, a, that's really good. You don't yeah, have, to. have to do that. Well, and you and you can just be you can be on BLM land or you know state land as long as you're being safe. That's that's really a great way to do that. You throw your ruck on and say, all right, I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to ruck this whole South edge of this Ridge and stop in periodic locations and find stuff to shoot at. You don't need a piece mm-hmm. of steel. Nope. So you said that you wanted to touch on, you know, a little bit of training philosophy later on in the podcast. You you want to touch on that or you want to, yeah, sure. What, what do you got? Like what I, I'm always interested to hear your philosophy on these things. Um,
1: well, So I guess I don't really have like a set philosophy, uh, but there's, there's always, you know, I'm, I'm big on training. I'm always training for something. Um, And one of the things that I've always pushed to the guys is you have to know what right looks like in training. Uh, So I'm not the type of guy that expects perfection on every drill that we do, but that's what you should be striving for does that make any sense yeah of course yeah it's it's, think, it's
0: because you're human well number one you're human and you should be striving for excellence because as you strive for excellence you're you're going to be more in tune with where your deficiencies are right and, and a lot of times
1: you'll see guys cutting corners um whether it's you know, like packing their gear out, right. Especially when it comes to sniper stuff. I mean, it's pretty easy to walk up to the firing line with the, with the shooting mat and you know, like a big ass tripod and all this other crap that we, we can carry. Mm-hmm. Um, and it, but I always tell dudes like when I, that's one of my pet peeves. When I walk up to the fire line, we're doing sniper training and there's shooting mats on the ground. It's like, Hey, yep. you guys need to know what right looks like in training. Exactly. You're not going to have that. Uh, So I would say that's one of the big concepts that I stick to. What, what are some of the things uh, as far as philosophy wise with you uh, that you really push on
0: your students? Um, Practicality first and foremost, because it's really easy to look at something and say, Oh, well, this is going to work. All right. Well you have to figure out whether it's going to work or not. Like you have to actually like, you have to take that whole system through its paces. Like, you get a new tripod or something like that. Well, just because you add this add this piece of gear to your to your you know repertoire or whatever you want to call it, like you still need to you still need to pick that piece of gear completely apart. You need to familiarize yourself with like every little aspect of it of what it takes to manipulate it. Um, are there any tight spots and things like that will automatically uh, jump out and surprise you when it's time to use it for real? Um, the practicality, just because, you you know, being exposed to the, like, as an example, my first combat patrol, I was like, oh, hell no. Like none of the shit that, that we learned is going to work. I remember Mm -hmm. thinking to myself, like, if I received contact right here, I can't guarantee that we are combat effective just because we were carrying too much stuff. We weren't, we really truly didn't understand what was going to happen. And in that, really, kind of set me off on on the realm of uh, for training aspects later on down the road. <clears throat> you know, my I, I ended up I ended up getting wounded on that deployment, and it kind of and it ended my career. So I didn't have a whole lot of time to to impart knowledge. I went to spur, I went to uh, SOTG and taught at the Urban Sniper Course and the Reconnaissance and Surveillance Course before I got out. But so I had a chance to talk a little bit to a, a couple of smaller groups of individuals, but that's where I'm at now. It's, it's practicality. And and it also turns over into the hunting world. We see people all the time that have all of this gear. And then when the moment of truth comes to actually have to take that shot, it's like, it's like they never touched it before. They've never touched before that happening. And, and you're just like, what, what are you doing? It's right there. You should have already been, you should have already shot that thing five minutes ago. And, and that's, again, right. that's where like the steel safari really kind of, uh narrows that down because then you truly know like what is the minimum what is the minimum that i need to make this work uh mm. things like lightweight rifles like there's nothing wrong with a lightweight rifle guys like a matter of fact the as a combat rifle the lighter that rifle is the easier it is for me to bring it to bear and, and move it and orient it on targets then that's more that's making me more effective and and faster right so i can do my job faster so and fun and foundations like i, I know you, it's like I, i've got it's, it's i'm a little different than than in the than than you've seen in the past because i do want people to learn the foundations but at the same time as you become a more advanced shooter you're gonna you're gonna have the foundations to be able to detract to from when you figure out what it is that you can and can't get away with because if you're not fundamentally mm-hmm. sound to begin with If you're not fundamentally sound to begin with, then you don't, you're never going to really know what you're number one, what you're capable of. And then number two, what you can get away with. Right. Got to know what right looks like in training. There you go. Yeah. That's, (laughs) that's a good, because that there's a lot of layers to that too. And Mm -hmm. and I like that. That's a really good overarching philosophy. You got to know what right looks like and that can be different for everybody. That can be different for everybody's game that they're going to play or, or, you know, whether they're training for professionals, you know, we've taught a lot of law enforcement courses together and it's one of those things too, where, um, some guys are like, well, this is more of a shooting course. It's like, well, you already know how to be a cop. I'm not here to try to teach you how to be a cop. This is just a, you know what I mean? Like, this is just another, I can, I can try, <laughs> yeah, I can try, but you might not end up good for you. Um, but it's, it's it's like, dude, you already understand how to be a police officer. You should already understand how to be a police officer. Now I'm just teaching you how to use this rifle. So yeah, it is a shooting course, right? It's English. Right. It's a shooting course or it's an employment course. Um, and it's, uh, I guess it is a different, it's a different outlook because there are a lot of people that are like, well, you didn't cover this. You didn't cover any of this, you know, use of force in your class. And I'm like, you guys do deal with use of force literally every day. Like, I'm not going to teach you anything that you don't already know about use of force. The only thing that's changing here is the weapon that you're using, at which point in time sure. you're going to have the ability to even more accurately positively identify your target because you got this big-ass magnified optic on there
1: right so, I, I remember when the, I think we were I think we we're in California um, and that that topic came up when me and you were teaching that class out at furough canyon and and one
0: oh the, yeah, yeah yeah.
1: one of the uh, le students asked about you know particular tactic, and I remember telling him it was like, look man're we're, we're gonna teach you techniques, and the tactics are on you, yes, so he was like, all right, I get it, but yeah. the cool thing about you know what we do now is we can really you know, tailor a curriculum to a students' goals. And mm-hmm. that's what, you know, now that we've been exposed to, you know, whether it's uh, military sniper, LE sniper, um, recreational shooter to PRS guy, hunter. I mean, all of these things, we can really take this background that we have to kind of tailor what those techniques are going to be to help those guys out in the, the broadest range of environments.
0: Yeah. And that's, um, you know, we're uh, the, the, the modern day sniper as a whole, like, you know, you and I have talked about <clears throat> where the direction wants to go or where, where, I'd like to take the direction and, and, you know, bottom line right now, we just want this to be like a, uh, like a, a foundational point of, of knowledge and skills for, for the person that wants to pursue the pathway of just being a really well-rounded shooter, well-rounded rifleman, because that's really what it brings to the table. Like we have some really technical aspects of it. And then we have on the other side, the really practical aspects of it that, you know, like you demonstrate, like, I don't need, all I need is a rifle in my body and that's it. And, you know, I'm, I'm lethal out to this distance and uh i think that's kind of getting starting starting to get lost in translation now with this you know with our giant gear race that's happening and and everybody just wants to uh to buy forgiveness when it comes to the components you know we had a, a situation uh, we set up a stage in uh, in cody at the at the gunworks match and we had um a 300 prc uh, it was either a 300 PRC or a 30, it was a 30 nozzler. and it was set into a lighter weight hunting stock and people would go from shooting this little tiny six millimeter BR that weighs 20 pounds or close to it. And then they'd go over and shoot this, this 30 nozzler at a target at like 600 yards and they couldn't, they couldn't run that rifle the way that it needed to be ran to shoot it well. And so everybody was complaining about dope. Ah, the dope's off in this thing. And I would six times I would walk up there and I would clean all six of the targets, one shot each. I'm like, there's nothing wrong with this gun guys. It's the way that you're shooting it. It's the way that you're, you're not shooting it because you need to be a well-rounded rifleman. It's not always going to work for this one aspect of things.
1: Yeah. I honestly didn't know, uh, that people were purposely making their rifles heavier. Until you, until <laughs> it's a,
0: you told me it's about a thing, that. man. It's a thing, <laughs> and and you know, so so what's happening now is that people are looking at it and they're like, oh well, I need to see. Not only do I need, they're thinking, well, not only do I need to see the splash on the target where I missed, but I also want to see the trace. And and I'm like, man, you guys, okay, okay, I get that. Like there are instances where. Um, depending on where the bullets landing, you might not be able to see exactly where it splashes and seeing trace uh, me personally. I don't see that as being the end all be all. Um, but what ends up happening is you got a 20 pound bench rest gun that you're basically balancing on a bag and, and squeezing. You're not even, I've seen even pictures of people pinching the trigger. Now I get it. Like it's a game and you guys are, and you're playing a game. That's one thing that's cool um but it's like it's just gotten this massive departure from from what it was what it was originally intended to be so um did you hear about jacob's did you hear about jacob's new match uh yeah assassin's way
1: (laughs) (laughs) you want to play (laughs) i'll I'll play dude i'm down yeah
0: Yeah, i think it's going to be kind of cool i mean knowing knowing jacob's background i think it's going to be kind of cool and um, it seems like it's gonna kind of be a, a a mixed play of like cannonball run with guns and the sniper adventure challenge <laughs> so if you guys in the Bandit. yeah, so for you guys that are listening and you know what the sniper adventure challenge is, uh Cody's actually one of the guys that um that beta tested the very first run of that am i am I incorrect in that statement
1: right yeah, me and Zach actually uh that was our our brainchild and it came about from um a match that was down in um, the Raton, the um, NRA Whittington Center. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was called the Survival Trial. And me and another guy uh, mm-hmm. named Aaron, Solid Dude, we went down there. We ran that match. We actually won it. But it was, in my opinion, it could have been a lot better. I don't want to say it was like poorly put together. But, you know, we were told to be ready for maybe a 20-mile movement, end up being over 40 well um, <laughs> the stages weren't timed right like nobody had pre-ran it so uh, the precision rifle stage we got to it was you know there was a a target at an unknown range in the dark and they're like the targets out there you could come back tomorrow in the daylight and shoot it if you want <laughs> am like, uh, like bro i walked 20 miles to get up here we're I gonna shoot this back. thing <laughs> so, uh, there was a lot of things that just weren't um, set, set up right. So, on the first uh, Sniper Adventure Challenge, we went out to Utah. Mizak and Ray ended up putting that one together. Uh, that was a lot of fun. That was the first one. And the great thing about that match was nobody really knew what they're getting into. That's, I mean, yeah, we... I remember. <laughs> <laughs> Dudes, like 80, 80 pound rucks on and drop holsters and the first event was you had to carry a hundred pound litter three miles yeah or maybe it was a mile i don't know maybe it was 10 miles i can't remember but um yeah we quickly weeded out a lot of people and i didn't do the next year because that's when uh you and ran john it. run it yep. and I, I didn't i didn't want to um muddy the water didn't want to make it yeah <laughs> make it look like magpul had an unfair advantage so I pre-ran it another year, got struck by lightning. That was fun.
0: <laughs> you got struck by lightning?
1: <laughs> yeah, when the, the first year that we had it up in Douglas. So we set the course up, and I pre-ran it with uh, my buddy Chaz. I don't know if you know Chaz Lauer. Yeah. He's awesome, man. Really good plumber, too. Pretty much built my whole house for me. Yeah,
0: um, I, I was actually – I ended up shooting with Chaz on um, – he was ahead of me on the steel safari and uh funny story man like this goes for equipment and (laughs) he was shooting and and uh every stage he would fire his six shots and he would like maybe one target would get hit and i'm thinking to myself i'm like holy shit man like this is gonna be hard come to find out he's like man i don't think my rangefinder works the right way and he had a set of <laughs> GeoVids just like me. And I, and I looked at his GeoVids and I, and I saw the little red dot in the bottom of the corner of the reticle. And I go, Oh yeah, hey, man. It's so, yeah. like, what's your data in? He's like, it's in yards. And I was like, that's your problem. So he changed it over. And then the next stage, he cleaned it. And that was like yeah. he started shooting the way he should have been shooting the rest of the day.
1: <laughs> He's awesome, man. Another example of like you know I I had no idea when I was in the military like guys did this kind of stuff for fun yes um, Austin Angus another another good dude but yeah anyway uh, me and Chad Chad is a monster that guy is so strong so we <laughs> we're like we're gonna pre run this thing so we pre ran it I carried <laughs> I carried a scar <laughs> and a forty four Magnum. <laughs> <laughs>
0: <laughs> uh,
1: just just to do it because i was like hey you know it's a training opportunity it doesn't count for anything sure and, yeah. uh, me and Chaz were coming over uh the what is it the east side of that mountain and a big thunderstorm broke out and uh we got down in a wadi and i was probably 50 meters in front of him on point and i had my rifle sticking out of my pack like straight up and uh, it was weird because I felt like it felt like I heard like crackling noises. And all of a sudden it was like, boom, I dropped to my knees. Like it, it felt like oh. I hit with a taser gun. But radio in my pocket was like 5,000 degrees and screaming just like, wow. <laughs> and Chaz uh, was like, are you all right? What's wrong? And I was like, dude. I think I just got struck by lightning. <laughs> <laughs>
0: oh man!
1: Are you uh, alive?
0: Get up! We have oh, yeah. to go.
1: We have yeah, a timeline to meet. That's pretty much what he said. <laughs> yeah. But that uh, was—it's
0: such a—that's such an awesome course, man. You guys did a great job on that.
1: Yeah, it's well, it's mostly mostly Zach,
0: uh,
1: his brainchild these days. I mean he put in like all the code breaking stuff like we always we wanted to have some sort of mental challenge to it mm-hmm. and after every one of them is kind of a learning experience uh, the cool thing is you know you can you can you don't have to complete the race like he's got some weird algorithm on points that he uses that yep makes sense after he explains it to me for about 40 minutes, but
0: yeah, that's, and that's where like me personally, I'm not good at that stuff, but not how my brain works. It doesn't function that way. So I, I remember just like, cause it makes it difficult to strategize when you look at, mm-hmm. when you look at it for what it is, if you're really in it to win it, then that's a whole other aspect of understanding what you have to do in that match is, is, is to game it and to strategize using looking at the point structure. And, um, you know, we just went into that one with the mindset of, Hey, you know, we're just, we're going to hit every single mandatory checkpoint. We're going to execute every single mandatory event. And then if we could pick up some bonus points along the way, we will. Um, and you know, unfortunately it didn't work out. Um, my teammate fell out of the, fell out of the deal for heat exhaustion, which is, I mean, it was a huge bummer, man, because that was one of those things where I was, you helped me out tremendously with preparation for that with nutrition. And that was, that was hundred percent on point. And I was like, uh it's like a, it's like on race day, you know, you're like raring to go and you've been training and your mindset is set to note know, to knowing that you're going into it. You're like, all right, man, I'm going to cover like close to 40 miles in 24 hours. Like you just know mentally that that's what's happening. And then when that doesn't come to fruition, it's just kind of like this giant, it's like this giant letdown, you know, and you got to go back up into the mountains and thrash yourself when you get home to get it all out of your system.
1: <laughs> I remember watching you guys on the spot tracker. I was like, what are they doing? <laughs> it's sitting down for like fuck, two hours, man. Yeah,
0: man. It was, yeah, I don't want to talk about it. Uh,
1: <laughs> Hashtag don't be a bitch.
0: Yeah. yeah it was <laughs> fucking rough one. Um, so moving along, <laughs> Um, a lot of people have asked me, you know, I guess we can wrap things up with a little, with a little bit of a technical aspect of things. So, uh, most, the, most people don't understand, um, and have asked a lot about those data cards, those, uh, those, those, um, density altitude cards. Yeah. And guys, this is, this is the brainchild of that, uh, Cody along with Zach, uh, from Thunder Beast. And so walk us through what your intention was when you designed those, when you designed those density altitude cards.
1: So the density altitude cards is, I mean, as you, as you and probably the majority of our listeners know that, I mean, density altitude is where it's at when we're talking about bullet trajectories. So uh, I talked to Zach and I said, Hey man, can you do, cause he writes his own like ballistic programs. Uh, I was like, can you do a, basically a color banded chart by density altitude that would take from the top of the color band to the bottom of the color band, no more than two minutes of angle on a 308 at 1,000 yards. Mm-hmm. And he was like, yeah, no problem. And he, seven seconds later, he emails me. <laughs> and, <God>. uh, <laughs> so the idea behind that was, um, I, I came up with that like, it was right about the time I, no, oh, it may have been a while after I had left the Marsoc course. And at the, at the time, PDAs were the new thing. Like remember where everybody was getting PDAs and we're on all this ballistic software Yep. and, um, I was wicked frustrated there because it was like, guys would not, it was like, you know, it was like, they would not get off the PDA. You know, they're like, Oh, let me check humidity and plug humidity in, yeah. you know, like who cares to yeah. 400 yards at a man-sized target, get over it. Yeah. And the best the best thing that I could think of to do was, hey, let's create a density altitude chart. We'll print it on some plastic paper, um, and each one of those bands will be color coded. And it, even though we set it up for 308, it still works great. For I mean, it works better if you're shooting faster calibers anyway. So you could take, you know, say up here I'm at 6,000 feet. A 6,000 foot yellow band DA density altitude. I can take that card i could plug the da into my ballistic computer write it all down on there and then i can actually proof it Mm -hmm. so when i go through make small adjustments to it and then as long as i've captured the d the data for that da i've got i've got it in a data book because you remember our old yeah forever you remember our old data books you know Mm -hmm. it was like page like it was a library of pretty much worthless stuff
0: yep and it was really you couldn't you couldn't navigate it it was difficult to sort through and really you didn't even know what you were doing you were just like ah i've just been told to write down the temperature and write down this and and we just didn't understand what it was that we were doing uh, no and uh i remember when you <clears throat> when you introduced me to that i looked at it and i was like whoa this is this is it this is this is it because i've used that ever since man like i'll And and the cool thing that you've also mentioned is that it drives training too. So Mm -hmm. how does it drive training? So it drives training by you can actually
1: see where the gaps are in your data. So if you're, if you're a kind of dude that works with one rifle, you can look and say, Hey, I've got yellow band. I've got red band, but man, I haven't shot anything where it's really cold and really high or really cold and really low. Mm -hmm. So if you have pages that are not filled out, it's pretty easy to look through it and say, Hey, here's an opportunity. Let's go get some, collect some data for this density altitude.
0: Yep. You got to look at it and say, okay, well it's freezing cold outside. I need to go, I need to go proof this stuff. And I think a lot of people rely, you know, really, really heavy on the technology aspect of it and be like, ah, I got my Kestrel here. It's no big deal. you know, that thing is it, it's, it, it serves a purpose, but when you need information in a hurry, uh, it's not going to be there for you. You can't get it in a hurry. Right. So,
1: yep. And having like a quarterback sleeve with the data card in it, it's always going to, I mean, if you're shooting at that DA, yeah, it may change, you know, like 0.1 or 0.2 mils, but I mean, depending on your skill level, if you're worried about 0.1 or 0.2, get a couple of hundred yards closer, man.
0: <laughs> <laughs> right.
1: <laughs> and if you don't know how
0: to, then you better work on it exactly it's a it's a total approach and i think that's you know what jacob's trying to accomplish with this assassin's way match he's trying to bring everything like that all back together into one into one thing um so if there's one if there's what are you what were some of your biggest lessons learned as a sniper operating in a combat environment like i guess just give me like the top three if you got them off the top of your head so um The first
1: one would be gear management and we kind of touched on that a little bit before. Um, There were some missions that I did where uh, at this point, you know, I mean, I'd been in the military for a while. I did consider myself a professional soldier at that point. So I'm not taking everything in the kitchen sink. My typical loadout going into the mountains. I didn't carry a pistol. I didn't carry a secondary rifle. I carried an m 110 10 or the time I was SR-25. Mm-hmm. I carried that rifle. Um, I carried seven mags on my person, another seven in my ruck, which was like a medium-sized day pack. Poncho liner, a poncho. Actually, I didn't take a poncho liner. Um, wet weather jacket, an MRE, a camelback, and a Kestrel. Or not a Kestrel, but I didn't have a Kestrel back then. I had a Vector Vector Dagger, which, mm-hmm. you know... I. An eight pound laser rangefinder. So, learning to keep my gear simple and manageable was uh, was uh, I think one of the keys to my success over there. Oh, okay. uh, my night optic was in there as well. All right, so gear uh, management. Gear management, I would say interoperability with other forces. So, kind of going back to knowing what different units do. So working with a, a commando company, an Afghan commando company led by an ODA. Mm-hmm. So you're speaking across language barriers at that point. So knowing a few words of, um, whatever language, you know, your partner force may be speaking could be anything from French to, I don't know, Arabic or whatever. whatever. So, yeah, I mean, learning learning a little bit about that culture, um, I think paid some paid dividends. I didn't I didn't feel like um, the way a lot of guys feel now, like they're always looking over their shoulder. Like I felt like I had really good rapport with my with my indigenous <clears throat> commandos, um, and then learning the way that the ODA worked as well as we, and a lot of times we supported. I wouldn't say we supported infantry units, but we worked with infantry units. So interoperability is a big one. And I think the third one, and I talk about this a lot when I teach it, the MARSOC course is mindset. Uh, Having that superior predator mindset is really the foundation for everything. Being able to like go out and like, Hey, I'm a, guy that's superiorly outnumbered in this situation, but I'm not going to let that get to my head because I'm a fucking predator. and I'm here to get shit done. Uh, That holding on to that for me uh, has really been the foundation that's carried all all the way through my military career. Like I've always been the underdog. Every school that I've gone to, hey, this dude's ASVAB waivers. (laughs) And
0: all he uh, wants to do is go on Libo.
1: Oh yeah, absolutely. <laughs> I mean, I went to, I went to combatant dive school when I was 37 I and it was, <laughs> you were the oldest so, by
0: what, eight years or something like that.
1: Yeah. I, and uh, <clears throat> there's some studs in that course, but I remember showing up, I had to get an age waiver, I had to get a mental health waiver, I had to get all these waivers <laughs> to go to that school. I had tried five times to get into it. And when I got there, I was like, there's nothing that's going to stop me from not graduating this course.
0: Yeah that's good stuff man that's that's all and believe it or not it's a lot of those things I touch on with with the law enforcement clients too man it's like you know the always the first thing is gear management you got a yard sale like you got a yard sale on the firing line like that shit's not going to work for me right and then how are you integrating yourself into the whole plan how are you integrating yourself into the whole team and and also having the mindset to understand. We talked, Phil and I had a, had a good podcast, uh, the episode before this, when we talked about what it means to be a volunteer and that's super important. That's part of being, that's, that's that predator mindset that understanding what your purpose is and understanding like what does go into being a volunteer because it's a, there's a lot of layers there. So, um, for you guys that, uh, that don't know or follow Cody Carroll, um, hit him up. He's got a lot of good stuff. He's, he's starting to come out. You're starting to come out with more videos lately, which is awesome. Yeah. Um, different practical, different aspect of it. And he's going to start um, playing a little bit more of a role uh, with Modern Day Sniper here in the future. We got some really cool stuff coming for you guys this summer. Uh, so, so keep your nose to the ground for that one. And, uh, follow Cody at what misfit six sends. Is that what it is? Yeah. That's it. That's amazing. nice. Um, yeah, man. So dude, this is a lot of fun. I'm glad that, that, uh, I'm glad that we got this first one knocked out and I'm, and I'm sure that we're going to have you back for, for many more coming up in the future. Cause we'll have some more pointed topics to discuss and, and I would love to get Phil on here and have that, uh, you know, that trifecta going on for a couple of future podcasts too.
1: Yeah. I I would like to go ahead and declare myself as the uh, team Liberty officer.
0: (laughs) (laughs) It's perfect. It's totally fitting. So, uh, man, I'm glad, I'm glad that I had a chance to chat with you and um, I'm looking forward to more stuff coming up. Yeah. Thanks, Kalen.
1: I appreciate you having me on today.
0: Right on guys. And um, thank you guys for listening again. And uh, we will see you next time.